I'm Maya Garantz. And I'm Rebecca Cohen. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. Today we are doing something really awesome. We have two interviews with expert guests. And we're doing it as a follow-up to our abortion episode from a couple of weeks ago, where since we published that podcast, we got these two really extraordinary kind of leaders in their field, like they really fucking know what's going on, to talk to us more about our own theories of how abortion gets represented in culture and what we can do to shift the culture in that conversation. So first of all, one of our listeners at The Wong Now wrote to us saying that one of the abortion fantasies that hit me hard in the last year was Coco's in Dear White People Season 2. Go Netflix. So Coco is pregnant by campus golden boy and ex-boyfriend Troy. She has a whole dreamscape fantasy of having the baby and becoming the woman who has it all. Uh, The dream career as a partner at a law firm and a gorgeous, smart daughter who goes to the same university. And she has manageable relationships with her daughter's father. And you get sucked in as a watcher thinking, oh, this is the future. It's glorious and lovely. And then you cut back to present day and Coco gets her name called by the nurse at the abortion clinic and she marches resolutely in because she doesn't have time for that shit when modern abortion is available and she's going to become a freaking senator. (laughs) Thank you so much. That is very nice. Awesome. And that makes me want to go watch it immediately. Yeah. And it's great that uh, at the Wong now wrote to us about cultural representations of abortions and recent ones, because one of the people we're interviewing is Dr. Gretchen Sisson, who is a researcher at UCSF, whose full-time job as a sociologist is tracking representations of abortion in popular culture. So we're going to be talking to her. She's amazing. Mm -hmm. Also amazing is Jess Mason Piclo. She is at rewire.news and she runs the podcast with Imani Gandhi, Boom Lawyered. And her work is as a legal journalist tracking the ways in which, in part, health decisions are being made by the courts on our behalf. And she has a lot to say about how culture and the law sort of have been in conversation with each other since Roe v. Wade. So here's our interviews with Gretchen and Jess. We did this episode about abortion a few months ago, which for various reasons we didn't put up until this week. Um, And after we did it, one of our listeners was like, you should see what this woman's work is doing. And and we came (laughs) to your stuff and we're really excited by it. Um, So if you could say your name and just tell us about the work that you do and how you came to it. Yes. Um, So my name is Gretchen Sisson. I am a research sociologist um, with the research group Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health. Um, And that that acronym boils down to ANSWER, if you're saying it out loud. Um, And we're located within the the OBGYN department, actually, at the medical school at the University of California in, in San Francisco. So I'm in this really interesting spot of being a sociologist in this medical school environment. Um, And a lot of my colleagues are epidemiologists, demographers, physicians, nurses. And I I have the lucky job of getting to study popular culture uh, within that space. Uh, My work mostly focuses on abortion on American television. Um, I've done some work looking at film as well. I've been doing this project now for over five years. Um, yeah, oh over God. five years. Yeah. Um, and it, that's the great thing about pop culture is that you're constantly getting new material and new things to study um, and, and new narratives to explore. So I feel very lucky that this is my job. To, I watch a lot of Netflix at my desk. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and that's actually not as fun as it sounds because I actually have to watch a lot of very bad TV too. <laughs> But And then we do a lot of in-depth coding, uh, looking at how abortion and reproductive decision-making are portrayed in our popular culture. Mm. Um, What are the stories that we tell about them? What do the characters look like who are considering or getting abortions? How old are they? Where do they live? What barriers do they face? What are the outcomes? How do they talk about it? Who do they go to for support? Uh, And we look at these stories uh, as a a reflection of of what our greater culture uh, believes and communicates about abortion. 
And I always say, you know, because now everybody knows someone who's had an abortion, right? But not everybody knows that they know someone who's had an abortion because women um, don't tend to talk very publicly about their abortion experiences. Um, so in that broader culture of silence for real stories, these fictional stories carry a lot of resonance in how we think about these experiences. Um, so it's, in addition to being very fun work, uh, it's very exciting. And right now, when we have not so much hope of uh, political progress uh, as far as abortion access or reproductive justice, um, focusing on culture change and how people are thinking and feeling about abortion feels particularly important. Now, one of our theories, and you're the expert, so we're very, very excited to come with you, <laughs> is that one of the things that's difficult is that the way that most women get abortions isn't a big deal. Mm -hmm. Like it's not, and that's not very dramatic. And it Mm -hmm. makes it hard to represent the way that most women generally encounter abortion. A lot of women aren't terribly conflicted about it, but that doesn't make a good story. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that there, there are a couple of things. Well, one, yes, you're right. Um, when you look at a, a lot of TV shows, and less so today, but um, if you look at TV plot points from like the, the 90s or the early 2000s, um, medical risk is greatly exaggerated in abortion. And, and that's, of course, unrealistic. That's, that's creating medical risk for the sake of drama in a way that doesn't reflect reality. But there are other ways that you can tell interesting stories about abortion other than getting it wrong. So even if a woman like feels very confident in her decision, goes through, you know, it's a quick, easy procedure, um, you can find drama or humor in other parts of it. Like, what does this mean for her career? What does this mean for her education? What does this mean for her relationship? What barriers does she have to encounter? Like, I'm still really waiting for my abortion road trip uh, movie. Uh, oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, oh grand, grandma, grandma with Lily Tomlin, that, that got kind of close, but you know, just the, all of the, you can, you can find drama in, in the process of raising money for your abortion or, um, you know, figuring out how you're going to get it or where you're going to go. That's where, where real women find drama and challenge in the experience or who are they going to tell? Uh, maybe they feel really confident about their decision, but they don't know how to tell their sister or their mother. And um, there are examples of this. Jane the Virgin did this really well, um, where you see Ziamara figuring out how, whether she should or how to tell her mother that she had an abortion. The abortion itself was almost a non-issue. You know, you find out she's pregnant one episode and the next episode she's already had the abortion a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Very straightforward. But the story that they tell is about how she shares that and who she goes to for support. Mm-hmm. Um they're, like you don't need to you don't need to have this big angsty fraught story in order to to include abortion stories in meaningful realistic ways. One of the things that we observed in our much less scientific way is that um, we felt like films maybe from the eighties ha- were able to portray abortion that sort of way more often, and that sort of gave way in our perception to films and television uh, trying to make abortion seem more fraught, uh, not in the ways you described, but like as an emotionally fraught experience for the person mm-hmm. seeking the abortion. Um, but that was just our impression based on our recollections. Based on your studies, would you say you've noticed changes over time in the way abortion has been portrayed? There have definitely been changes. Now, I I say that, but also, um, like, Dirty Dancing remains one of my favorite portrayals of abortion. Oh, yeah, we totally Um, totally talk about that. And just the way that, I mean, there's plenty of drama there, but the drama comes from all basically all of the heroes of the story rallying around Penny. How is she going to afford her abortion? How is she going to get the day off? What does that mean? And then how do they keep her safe after um, it it turns out that it was a a dangerous procedure and the risks that the the rest of the characters are willing to go through um, Mm. to help her get this and ensure that she is healthy throughout the process. You know what I I really love in that scene is that after the abortion, it's almost like the way that she's dressed in the movie and the way that she's shot, she looks even more beautiful. Like there's something (laughs) about that where it's like, all of the scenes afterwards, physically, she's more relaxed. Like she doesn't wear as much makeup and she's just glowing. Like there's something yeah. about how they stage that that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. That she has not been sullied by this experience, but that she's been lightened by it. 
One of my favorite parts is that even though Baby's father is so disapproving, he he not only takes care of Penny um, in the acute moment of care, but he comes back to check up on her. Oh, right? yeah. He's committed to keeping her safe. And then there's the one quick line that Penny says to Johnny that, you know, the doctor says I could still have children if I want. And I think that that's really important because we see so many examples on TV that create this false dichotomy between characters who are getting abortions and characters who are mothers. Where in real life, of course, most women who get abortions are already parenting. They're already mothers and the vast majority will go on to parent at, at a later point. And so that with that one line, it, it drives that point home that, Mm-hmm. that Penny can, can still very much be interested in being a mother in the future, that she can be really pleased that her fertility has been preserved, that the doctor worked hard to preserve that for her, and, and that she still needed an abortion at that moment. So that's actually one of the things that we noticed, um, that I noticed in your research, is that you talk about how most of the characters who get abortions uh, are like white teenage girls. It's almost like a rite of passage coming of age story. I was so um, irresponsible and now I have to deal with it. Um, And that we don't see a lot of women who are older who have kids already or women of color. Mm -hmm. I mean, that both of those are starting to change a little bit. Um, So that analysis of the character demographics was published, um, I think, in 2015, and again, this is both the benefit and the challenge of studying pop culture is that like it's you always have new material, but you always have new material. Yeah. <laughs> so like the, the findings are immediately dated; it's already it's already four years old. Um, so I, I probably need to go back and do a new analysis. I, I do think that that is starting to change. We are seeing more women of color. We are seeing more more um, mothers. But you know, up until very recently, we were not, and the characters that were getting abortions skewed younger and whiter. And I think that there are a couple of things going on there. One is that, of course, teen pregnancy is itself incredibly stigmatized. So Mm -hmm. to the extent that abortion is stigmatized, in a lot of ways, teen motherhood is too. So if you have this sort of middle-class, white, pregnant uh, high schooler, then she's, she's sort of screwed either way. Yeah. Right. She can you get the abortion and go through that stigmatizing experience where they can have her be a teen mom. And, and that's another stigma. Um, so I think for a lot of viewers, um, seeing these younger characters get abortions is they're more sympathetic. Um, they're not at, judged as harshly, at, at least for some audiences. Hmm. So I think I think that that's probably part of it. And people always say, well, yeah, but there's, you know, everybody on TV is younger and whiter. Um, so, of course, the characters getting abortions will be too. That's actually not not it, it is it is true. But the the disparity is further exaggerated. Um, so there are actually a, about a proportionate number, for example, of black women on TV. If you look at the U.S. population they're on different shows, right? They're on niche mm. shows, on niche networks. They're they're not on the same big network primetime shows. That you know, those aren't as diverse as they should be. But if you look at TV in general, it the numbers work out okay. Um, and abortion patients are on TV are still like eighty seven percent white. Huh. <laughs> um, so that it, it's it, it's a pretty sweeping disparity there. But we're, we are seeing that change. Um, and I think, you know, I don't want to boil it down to one person, uh, but I'm going to. Uh, because, <laughs> because I do think that Shonda Rhimes has played a remarkable role yes. in that. And single-handedly has, has shown us Christina Yang on uh, Grey's Anatomy getting an abortion. It's just Olivia Pope on Scandal getting an abortion. And has made an abort, you know, has made abortion stories and abortion provision like very forefront, overtly forefront in in a lot of her shows. And of course, these are tremendously popular shows, uh, and she hasn't shied away from that. And her, the characters who've been getting abortions have been, you know, a diverse group of women. And I think that that's sort of starting to change the needle. And then we also, like I mentioned, we saw Jane the Virgin, um, obviously the Latina story about uh, needing an abortion. And, and that, you know, that also brings up the deeper argument of what does it mean to actually tell the story of a Latina woman getting an abortion? So I like to bring up the example on Scandal, actually. There was an episode um, where Olivia helps a Navy service woman get an abortion after she's sexually assaulted. Now, the actress who played that character 
is left is a Latina actress, right? But the if you look at like the character's name and how they identified the character, there was nothing that really called on her identity as a Latina woman. It wasn't really talked about her name. Mm. Uh, I think her last name was Martin. Like it wasn't it wasn't really coded as a Latina experience. So the visual representation was there, um, but that's of course very different than when you look at Jane the Virgin, right? Um, which is a show that is about the you know American Latina experience. And, and what that means for those characters and what it means to share your abortion story with your, um, your Catholic mother um, mm-hmm. and, and a very, very different dynamic. So part of what we need to look at next is not just, okay, what is the race of the actress playing this character, but what does it actually mean to tell a story about a black woman getting an abortion or a Latino woman getting an abortion? How does that, how's that experience different? Um, so now that we have a little bit more, visual diversity? How are we making sure that that diversity is reflected in the actual stories and experiences that we're telling? And let me ask how are TV shows doing in terms of economic diversity? And also, are there any portrayals of women with disabilities or people with disabilities getting abortions? I can't think of any women with with disability, physical disabilities, um, abortions. Um, I would have to look at my full data set to say that definitively, but but I'm pretty familiar with it at this point, and, and none are coming immediately to mind. Mm. Um, there's also, I don't believe that we've seen any trans men getting abortions, so that that's also missing. Yeah, you know there there are plenty of stories left to be told, right? Um, but I, I you know I do think that we are we are getting there now. As far as socioeconomic diversity, we see that to some extent in a barriers to access. Mm-hmm. The show Shameless had an example of an abortion where a character, they sort of had a fundraiser at a bar to raise money for her abortion. They kind of lied about what they were fundraising for. <laughs> um, that was an earlier episode. But then they had another episode later where one of the main characters gets an abortion and and the money just seems to be taken care of there. Mm. Um, it's sort of there. It's, there are nods to it in different ways, just like there are nods to certain barriers. But there's not like a really robust discussion of what that means. There have been a few a few examples of where's the money going to come from? How are we going to pay for this? It's there a little bit, mm. but certainly not to the extent that real women are experiencing it as they as they are trying to figure out how to access care. I I actually didn't realize how many abortions there were on TV. (laughs) (laughs) No, neither did I. Um, Well, that was when we started this project, right? Because you know, popular opinion is sort of like, well, there are no abortions on TV. Characters always have mis- think about getting an abortion and they have a miscarriage. And there's this idea that it was it was totally absent. And then when we dug a little deeper, um, there were certainly more than we thought there were. And then over the past five years, there have been many more. Ah. So we have more material to work with. And what we also found was that there are a lot of stories about abortion in which a character doesn't actually get an abortion. And, and that's very important to see too. Mm. So what happens to the person who was pregnant a- after they consider getting an abortion? And what does their, you know, if they become a parent, what does that look like? What happens to their relationship? So so even if the abortion doesn't happen, um, there can be commentary about what abortion is or looks like. Or yeah. stories that are set his- historically. Um, you can you see a lot of characters thinking about getting an illegal abortion and then they change their mind because it feels unsafe. Mm. Um, so that's a, another important narrative about abortion without one actually happening. So we we often include those abortion considerations, even if they don't have abortion results in a lot of our analyses. Do people ever come to you who are who are creators? Your work comes out in papers that I'm assuming you're publishing in like peer reviewed journals. Yeah. Um, where have you seen your work go in mm-hmm. sort of a wider way? So we're working on developing more relationships with content creators. We are particularly interested in doing audience impact studies to see what yes. <laughs> how audiences are actually interpreting these stories, um, and and that will require some buy-in from creators. So that's that's sort of the clear next step, and we're working on that. Um, we've also done some presentations with the Writers Guild, both in LA and New York, and you know we're 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 trying to do more outreach there. Um, and I should also say, like, I'm not. I, I'm probably like the the data person in this role, but there are there's a great pro, a great Hollywood Health and Society program at USC um, that does a lot of direct outreach to content creators, nice. um, and I've worked with them on at a couple events. 
And Planned Parenthood actually has a great arts and entertainment person who does a lot of consulting on these shows too. Um, so there are, you know, I, my, my role is very much to keep my spreadsheets up to date and get the numbers <laughs> published and, and try and form these relationships, but mostly make sure that, that the people that are really closely tied to the industry are working with them and collaborating with them in, in meaningful ways. You said that you've noticed over the last five years more portrayals of abortion, and it seems like a concerted effort to more accurately portray abortion and portray the barriers to it and things like that. Do you track the gender of the creators or other information about the people behind the media that you're analyzing? Um, Well, first of all, I mean, yes, yes, there are more abortion stories on TV in the past five years. Part of that though is because there's just more TV, right? There's more channels, there's more distributions. Yeah. There's, you know, so so as a proportion of total content, I don't think it's gone up. But I do think that um there are more abortions on the most popular shows, right? Mm. So the shows that are, are sort of like the ones that bin- people binge watch and talk about, um, they're including that more, you know, the network primetime top TV shows. Um, we're seeing more abortion stories there. So that's definitely on the uptick. Now, as, as far as getting to your, your, your question about the gender of the content creators themselves, um, we did track that. Um, I kind of tried to dig through some of the data there. The issue is that there are just so few women. Right. <laughs> there are just so few women that are writing TV shows and, and, and working as showrunners that there wasn't a lot of meaning to that analysis because it was such a small proportion. Now, that being said, like there were the episode of glow, um, that had an abo- glow that on yeah, Netflix. Netflix. Um, they had a great, you know, that was written that they have two women who are their head screenwriters and producers, but they actually said that one of their, um, male writers was really critical on that episode. Right. Hmm. Or, um, Bo Willeman, who, uh, is the writer for, um, house of cards, uh, he was at an event with me and I, I spoke with him and, and he, he's like really committed to trying to get this right now. He's gotten it wrong, wrong before you know, he got it wrong on Ides of March. And I have some things about, um, you know, critiquing how the, how House of Cards handled it. Um, but like as far as good faith effort and, and, and intention and thoughtfulness, he's right there. Um, and then you look at, for example, uh, Black Mirror, um, which had their first episode directed by a woman which included abortion and got it horribly wrong. It was actually directed by Jodie Foster. Got it horribly wrong. Oh, really? Um, mm. So there's a certain extent to that that I, I believe that diversifying the storytellers and content creators in Hollywood will diversify the stories that we see. But we, I haven't yet seen a clear pattern as far as abortion stories go. Okay. So this yes. this actually leads um, to my next question. So you're the the keeper of the data set, and you've mentioned starting to try to reach out to get audience reaction and response um, to increase sort of the the feedback loop of culture to viewer. Mm-hmm. Are there any other things that are coming up for you in your continued research? Like, what are you writing about right now? What are the questions that you're interested in right now or in the coming year, let's Mm -hmm. say? So the audience impact one is really big. And that's really important because I think that, well, for I'll, I'll just give one specific example. We see a lot of stories about illegal abortion for stories that are set in the past. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those abortions are dangerous and physically risky. Now, does the viewer come away from that saying, well, thank goodness abortion is legal now and now is safe? Or do they come away from it thinking that abortion is actually inherently very dangerous? Right, um, like we don't, right. you know, we don't, we don't know sort of what the take home message is there. And that, that can be tricky. Um, mm-hmm. So the questions like that, where we're like, how, how is this actually impacting how people are thinking and feeling about this issue? Those are the sorts of things that we want to be exploring with the, uh, the impact work. I'm also hoping to look more at the, the, the racial aspects of this, these stories and how diverse are we actually getting and, and where can we strengthen that and, and whose stories are still missing. Mm. I make these infographics um, every year that, that we sort of send off to different places and, and, um, the producers guild of America has had a few meetings that we've sort of prepared some things for. And, and I always try to include like, these are the stories you've seen a lot of, and these are the stories that are missing. And if I look back at the ones from two or three years ago, 
like I have to I always have to change that section because we always have more you know because it is getting more diverse um so I want to try and keep keep pushing that and seeing like okay well whose whose stories are still not being told hmm. and how how else can we think about this um so that that's another area that's a great crib sheet for them. Yeah. That's yeah. Like, oh, this story hasn't been told? Okay. Yeah. Um, then the, the other bit um, that we're starting to explore is um, how anti-abortion filmography is, is shaped and reflected. These are films that are usually made by Christian filmmakers and, and really intentionally anti-abortion filmmakers. And they don't have like big studio box office sales or big releases. But they're often shown at churches and youth groups and in crisis pregnancy centers. And um, they're, they're not documented. And there are plenty of anti-abortion documentaries. But mm. we specifically want to look at the scripted fictional stories that are being told. Um, they're often targeted for, like, younger teen audiences. Um, and we want to look at what is being included in those stories there. And that's a little bit of a different angle because we've been looking at kind of broadly consumed pop culture. Um, and now we want to use these films as a way to look at more specifically at this intentional messaging. Yeah, around abortion. What, what are the targeted messages that they're pushing? Yeah. Do you find that there are explicitly anti-abortion messages in the mainstream pop culture that you're looking at? I think there are mistakes in our in okay. pop culture um i think that there are times when storytellers get things wrong either because they don't know better or i'll just be i'll just leave it at that okay <laughs> um yeah i mean there are things yeah i mean there are things that are wrong that i see on tv and and it's difficult but we, until we do the audience impact it's hard to know like how wrong that, how important that is. Mm. So for example, and you know, like I said before, I think Shonda Rhimes is great and has really changed the landscape here. But when Olivia Pope goes to get her abortion, she's in an ambulatory surgical center, right? Yeah. She's, she's in a hot, what looks like a hospital room and she has a hairnet. Like that's not what an actual abortion procedure looks like. It makes it look like a much more extreme surgical procedure than it is. Mm. Um, so so is that important to a viewer? Do they come away thinking that that's what abortion looks like um, as opposed to kind of like a more routine clinic-based care? Um, or is it just more important that Livia got the abortion they showed it on primetime TV, right? It, like, well, so, I, so I think one thing, one thing that's important about that is that it gets the audience to root for the abortion because no one wants her to have Fitz's baby. <laughs> I thought that that was actually really like, like, like making the audience go yeah she should that that's yeah. actually really important that's the other reason that that tv is important and probably the reason why i as a researcher am more drawn to television than film um because if there's an abortion in a movie then it then it becomes like an abortion movie right and people can go see it or not based on whether they know that it, it contains an abortion but on TV, you can become really committed to a character's storyline and feel like you know them very well. Mm. And then they get an abortion. And that's very different than, than a movie character who you might have only have known for an hour or less before you, know, you see them talking or thinking about getting an abortion. And I think people do have different relationships with TV characters in that way. What are the biggest, most common mistakes that you've seen? I mean, other than the diversity piece, other than the fact that the, that the characters on TV don't look like women who are getting abortions in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. um, I think that abortion is, is too easy to get on TV. We don't see the barriers that characters actually face. Okay. Um, and another, well, and another, I love this example because, and I love this show, was when Friday Night Lights had Becky get an abortion. They were so thoughtful and intentional about how they did it. It's a great storyline. The whole show takes place in this like really small West Texas town. And this young high school girl gets pregnant. Um, and it's, it, thought, it handled very thoughtfully. And the screenwriters actually consulted with Whole Woman's Health, one of the abortion providers in Texas, hmm. about the legal status at the time and like what what regulation should they show? So the doctor reads the actual script that's required by Texas law. Oh, wow. Um, wow. She goes through the, you know, the waiting period and, and they talk about the waiting period. It like a high level of attention to detail. Um, but like at no point do they show like, like she, she hasn't, there's an abortion provider in Dillon, Texas. Right. right. Which there never would be. Right. And you don't, you don't see her driving like five hours to get to Austin to get her abortion, which in this, 
small conservative West Texas town, there's no abortion provider. Right. Um, so it's things like that where you see creators that are really well intentioned, very well researched. And then there's like that one thing that actually really changes what the story looks like for that character. I think that it's just a question of calling attention to those things. And we don't expect TV to get everything right. Like it's, it's right. TV. These people aren't doctors. Um, but it's worth, it's worth talking about, you know, what that means for the story and, and for how people understand this. Wow. Well, thank you so much. This was amazing. Yes. We, um, we are always dazzled when we get to talk to the actual experts. <laughs> right. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So we are very excited to be talking to Jessica Mason Piclo. She is a legal journalist for rewire.news. Am I getting this right? Uh, you and, are. And she also um, is a lawyer and has spent many years working on legal issues related to women's health. What are we missing? Nothing. Um, oh, I have, I, I have a podcast. You should listen to Boom Lawyer too. Oh, of, of course. course, with the great Imani Gandhi. And you should follow both of them on Twitter, uh, at Hegemami and at Angry Black Lady. They are fantastic. And we're so excited that you're here with us because even though your focus is on legal issues, in covering legal issues, you've also thought for a long time about the cultural issues that sort of go back and forth in between the legal issues. Um, and we wanted to talk to you about that today. Oh, I'm excited because I can talk about this stuff forever. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the um, themes that uh -huh. came up in our recent podcast discussion around abortion is the question of legal change and political change versus cultural change, mm -hmm. the way that they interact. How, in your perception, has historically the relationship between um, the conversation and the cultural perception of abortion affected the legal status of abortion or vice versa? Wow. Excellent. Okay. It has a lot and in tremendous and varied ways. So um, let's see where to start with that. Um, well, let's focus on the decision of Roe v. Wade itself, the actual legal opinion, not necessarily like the outcome or anything, but just the words on the page, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that has at times gotten me in hot water is that I'm actually very critical of the Roe decision. I find that it, it is extremely patronizing and that it wraps up uh, a sense of autonomy with um, the a basis of a learned professional guiding a person through that choice. And so while I understand that there is an element of that that was necessary because the laws were targeting providers and criminalizing that action, the the result of the decision, so what the the cultural and legal recipe produced, a soup that does not ultimately reflect patient autonomy. And I'm not alone in my critique of this. Like this is, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg makes this point when she argues that we should be talking about reproductive rights and, and abortion restrictions in particular in the guise of 14th Amendment equal protection since they target only a particular population. But if we're talking about the cultural conversation, even when it was going in the right way, it was still going wrong mm -hmm. <laughs> is sort of mm -hmm. how how I characterize that. Um, and so that was happening for a whole lot of reasons. That was happening because in some ways, I think the Supreme Court was catching up to where the country was in terms of starting to liberalize on abortion laws, but it's still inherently a very conservative institution. And so catching up is still going to be a, a slow act. Um, I also think that it reflects the way very much the way that the forces at the time had polarized around the conversation. And, you know, maybe this is an, an anecdotal sort of direct some of this. One thing that is fascinating to me um, from that time period is the degree and involvement of 
clergy members in helping facilitate access to reproductive health care at the time. We think we don't think of those to be the the uh, sort of um, boundary lines quite the same way, given the evangelical opposition to abortion. And let's be clear, it's not like all religious folks were unified in this, but it was very much a conversation about social justice in that sense and poverty outreach. And that is a different conversation than what is obviously going on in in many parts of religious communities now when it comes to abortion. And so but even that is inherently a conversation about hopefully helping, but in sometimes sort of like saving in a way that is still denying agency. So throughout this entire conversation, and I mean, I could we could talk about that in terms of the context of contraception, too, because first it was, you know, uh, married people and then it was single people. So it's this like inching towards autonomy and we have not gotten there yet. Okay, so if we're starting this, so then what I'm seeing is like, we have clergy people who are probably on the front lines of ministering to poor people. And they're the ones who are often being like, people go to them in times of crisis. So they're Mm -hmm. sort of the witness to that. You have the doctor as the expert Mm -hmm. um, who's there who like, we can trust a doctor to make those decisions and help women make that right. Then where did the change happen? Because I know by the time that I was growing up in the 80s or whatever, the sort of pro-life posters of glowing airbrushed fetuses (laughs) situation had happened. Where was the cultural turn? Mm -hmm. Well, there are so a couple things, but one of them, if we're talking about uh, the link to political power, which is, I think, sort of what you're getting at, is it be is it for a time became unfashionable to be uh, publicly anti uh, desegregation. Bob Jones University fought a huge battle battle to stay segregated. They went all the way to the Supreme Court. So the evangelical face of the anti-abortion movement now started as a political force really opposing segregate or desegregation efforts. So, you know, they they are radicalized in Roe, but they're really radicalized in Brown v. Board of Education. And so, Hmm. you know, these these forces come together and they so they split in part on racial politics um, and found that it was very much an ability to foment dissatisfaction and consolidate power by leveraging people's emotional response to Roe. And hey, there were plenty of people willing on this who who sincerely, and I want to be very clear that like they they have sincere, deeply held religious convictions against abortion. And I am not here to cast a aspersion on that. I don't agree with it, but like, hey, you do you on that sense. But if we're being honest about where that falls in line with the right's uh, rise to power, that really coincides. Um, they they lost traction there in, in the fight and it coincides with, you know, the split in Southern Democrats. And these are the folks who were active members in their local clan affiliations. And that was not just because they wanted to be, but because that was a pathway to power, a pathway to political power. That's yeah. So we were talking about that in our episode. We were mentioning um, you writing something, uh, writing about that and how when people in power want to talk about how they're really the victims, the symbol of a fetus, uh, what could be like less <laughs> mm-hmm. powerful, right. more blameless, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like more vulnerable than a fetus. So the people with all the most power sort of use that as a symbol to represent themselves as a way of uh, putting a smokescreen up for their tremendous political power. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, you know, um, I also talked about um, sort of the disconnecting uh, in culture of the pregnancy from the body. Mm -hmm. And this Mm -hmm. is, you know, this 
absolutely falls well in line with that. I mean, when you have a narrative of immaculate conception that you then carry into legislating on, mm. right? You, I mean, your belief system is wrapped around a disembodied pregnancy that is at no point in time a real actual threat to the host, for lack of a better word. Um, you know, that is that is going to inform the entire conversation. And there is a lot within, and Catherine Joyce has written very extensively and, and done really great work in this area, but there is a lot within the evangelical political narrative that depends on ideas of persecution and consistently being the outsider. And it is wrapped up in not just their theology, but in their policy as well. And we're seeing it play out right now in real time. I mean, Mike Pence is of this thought. He is a dominionist of this, you know, branding. And so when you get into those nuggets, it's you know, I mean, I love talking about this stuff on the, ten, you know, on the intellectual at the 10,000 foot view, but also, you know, um, as somebody who's existed in this space for about a decade now, the amplification and seeing this like on a daily carried out in actual policy is is a shift and it's it's scary. So let me ask what from a cultural perspective, can we do to shift that conversation or in what way does the conversation need to shift to help the legal situation shift in the direction mm -hmm. we want? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, right now, um, I feel like uh, there are many of us who feel like we are existing in some pretty scary times because people are saying the quiet parts out loud, yeah, um, right? Yeah. The things that used to not be polite to say in public, they are now not just saying them, they're acting on them. And so, um, on a sense, I see this as, as a positive development in that we need, we don't know what we're dealing with and if we can't see it and look at square in the face. And so what we know that we're dealing with and looking square in the face uh, um, is the most basest sort of racist, uh, sexist uh, impulses that our country was founded on, but that have existed in wrapped up in a different narrative for the last 200 years. Mm -hmm. um, that it, the ability to maintain that narrative um, is really difficult. And I think that we're, we're, we're seeing the breaking point of that. Um, the Kavanaugh nomination uh, encapsulate this encapsulates this perfectly in so many ways. This idea of, you know, we're going to somehow have a conversation about um, respecting original intent. Well, that isn't an opportunity to interrogate structures of power because that is what the original intent was. The original intent was to create and build a legal system that protected very specific interests. And we now have enough people who um, have not been able to be kept out of the conversation who I think we can get critical mass on this, but it's just going to take a lot of talking. And, uh, and um, you know, some of us have more privilege to do that than others. And this is an opportunity um, and, and something I'm trying to, on a personal level, interrogate myself every day, which is how effectively and what is that imperative to use that platform? Because... I have a different level of protection than than other colleagues of mine. And mm -hmm. um, that is something that we need to be cognizant of and is also an opportunity to talk about this as a structural system, because that's not right. That should not be the case. Right. As a white woman, I should not be inherently more able to say things than than a black woman, for example. But the reality is that I am. And so I will and call that out in the process. That's one thing that I find really um, frustrating, <laughs> I mean, ongoingly frustrating, which is to say that women's perspectives are important in this, you know what I mean? Like when you like talk to women, listen to women, listen to black women, listen to immigrant women, like that seems to be the shift that is so hard to get to in terms of these issues. Yeah, I mean, and part of that is because I think that there are just a segment of population who don't want to believe and listen to women because to do so would force them to acknowledge uh, another voice in the room, right? I mean, this is absolutely about respecting sort of the levels and degrees of autonomy. 
You know, if you take someone like Brett Kavanaugh at his word that he wants to um, really adhere to the intent as the founders had it in their mind, then they would not have three female colleagues on the bench with him. Right. So how is that going to play out? And that I, you know, and that's not an easy thing to say, but and it makes me not fun at parties often. But (laughs) the reality is those are the things that need to be said out loud like calling people on that. So, you know, I, I mean, in, in polite conversations, right. In my legal, in my learned legal circles, when people try to pull that originalist BS, I absolutely now bring my agency into that. So do you have thoughts about like specific concrete ways that regular folks can um, participate in changing the way that people frame this topic, changing it Mm -hmm. from, being the sort of patronizing, you know, at best, because I feel like that's the trap that Democrats and the left wing generally mm-hmm. fell into, as you said, right? The argument has become a very patronizing concession that abortion is wrong and evil. And we understand that. We want to respect their view on that. But it's sometimes necessary. So let's let the doctor guide the lady. How do we change that to just being a conversation about social justice? Yeah, I mean, it's the look on people's face when you tell them you believe abortion is a social good is a look. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It's certainly but uh, it is. And so um, there is a there is a sort of tenet in the reproductive justice movement about meeting people where they're at. And I think that first of all, you know, and that puts a lot of work on the on the speaker. But um, Mm. I think that that's, you know, um, it is what it is. So first of all, assess your audience, right? Like, where are people? Um, And then, you know, the entry point and be brave. And it's okay if you can't be brave every day. Like, you know, I mean, some of this is 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 a process. It's not going to be immediate. But in terms of like a, a concrete example of that one um, story that uh, that I tell is I was um, uh, doing a presentation on abortion rights at a pu- large public university in um, the south. Mm-hmm. And that might not be considered a very friendly audience. And largely the room uh, was made up of undergraduates who came from Baptist and related backgrounds and who were um, at best hostile when they walked in the room. And, you know, um, at worst, some were antagonistic. And, you know, that's not fair. Some were there, like, legitimately to learn. But the it was not, I would not be considered walking into a friendly audience at that at that point in time. And I know that that's fine. Like, it's it's the university, that's it's what you do. And so one of the things that I did was just, you know, ask sort of, what's people's background? Like, you know, how many of you had comprehensive sex ed? growing up and like two or three people in a room of 200 raised the room oh my God. about three quarters of them had existed in an abstinence only environment. So that told, that told me a couple things, right? Sort of like a, I also can't get grouchy and start coming at them with data that they don't have the skill set to interpret. Like if you don't know how biology works, starting to yell about the difference with whether plan B is in fact an abortive fashion or not is going to get you nowhere. Right, Right. Right. So, and this is, again, this is so labor intensive, but so figuring that out, did my thing. Lots of people were upset until I got to the story of Pervy Patel. And I'm not sure if you or all of your listeners know Pervy's story. I will be very brief. When Mike Pence was governor of Indiana, this is under, you know, the Pence regime in Indiana. Uh, Pervy Patel is a woman who experienced uh, a miscarriage. It may have been self-induced. Uh, it may not have been. Um, the jury, was, the evidence was still a little inconclusive. She ended up at a hospital. And there is a very long and sordid tale about her prosecution. It went all the way up through the Indiana courts at rewire.news. We've covered it extensively. I would invite you to go through there. But the reality is that she was prosecuted for a miscarriage, Mm -hmm. whether it was intentional or not. And I told her story and these kids were students. Sorry, I don't want to be ageist. These students were, were shocked because everybody 
they knew had somebody who had experienced a miscarriage because they exist in communities that don't practice contraception, believe in having lots of babies for God. And so the idea that the police, because I said, you know, this is the natural outcome of criminalizing abortion, is that pregnancies are a medical event that sometimes end on their own. And sometimes they don't. And sometimes you do things not meaning to end them and they end. Or sometimes you do things meaning to end them and they don't end because it's medicine. It's science. Like it's a biological event. Mm. And so when you criminalize science, when you criminalize this medical event, what you do is invite the state in to determine because they have to now. The state now has an obligation to determine if a crime has been committed. So I don't know. Was the minister's wife out working in the garden too hard? And is that negligence? And can she be prosecuted for that? We don't know until there's an investigation. And the idea of of the cops coming in and investigating their minister's wife or their mom or, you know, their sister. And again, this is still patronizing because this is all in relation, right? It's not just because this is an outrage in and of itself. It's because you had to draw up the well of some moral sympathy by right. attaching right. an identity to the to the person to make them worthy of that, right? Mother, mm-hmm. sister, minister, minister's wife, whatever. But that got Baptist kids who grew up in evangelical culture and go home to evangelical culture and will likely replicate evangelical culture hopefully thinking about one slice of that differently. And so does it move the entire Overton window? No, Mm. it didn't. But maybe that's something. I think that's one of the things I, like everything that you're saying, I did um, community-based work in like rural Mississippi for two years. And absolutely everything about that work is meeting people where they're at. As an artist, I'm just there to facilitate and bring a skill set and a skill structure to help people tell their own stories. Mm-hmm. And I completely understand that. What's frustrating in terms of the larger political discourse, and Rebecca and I talked about this, is that I feel like the Democrats over time and over the sort of unfolding of this, mm-hmm. we are always the ones to be like, I understand that you feel this way. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. And by doing that, in this larger political cultural sense, we say, so your perspective is valid. And no one is doing that on the other side. Mm-hmm. And, right. and and sometimes I feel like I just want to be like, you know what? Shut the fuck up. Abortions are fine. They're fine. Mm-hmm. Let me ask. The, there's things like the, the one in three project, which mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Um, their whole goal is to get people who've had abortions to tell their stories about abortions mm-hmm. and to create a space where people can see and hear about how the experiences of abortion are very different and that they're not all tragic or difficult. They're not all somebody agonizing for weeks and then feeling terrible about it, but they can be that or many other things. Do you think that that sort of approach can be effective? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yes and no. Mm. Uh, if I'm being really honest. So I saw, I think it was out of the Journal of American Medicine. It was some medical journal. And I think it was JAMA that had uh, released a a study that said effectively um, there's the 80-10-10 rule. Like 10% of folks on either side are immovable. So don't waste your oxygen. And I feel like what progressives run afoul of is insisting on talking to that 10% on the right that is immovable. This is those myriad of Trump supporter pieces, like who really cares? We know what's going on here. That's not the point. So I think that if we're trying, if we think that an abortion storytelling project is at the end of the day going to get somebody who is inclined to sign up for an Operation Save America mailing list and like go harass folks at clinics, then no, no, you're not. I'm sorry. In my opinion, there's other ways that we can be very great about our advocacy. If what we're trying to do is change the conversation in that 80%, 
and how we do that, I think that can be very effective. And I mean, even in the in the sense of like the ways in which reporters for like AP and Bloomberg and Reuters start to think about this. We have been pushing mm. them, for example, on um, framings around so-called crisis pregnancy centers. And because the default setting originally with a lot of that reporting was that these are just nice religious folks trying to help people out. And come on, like, <laughs> that's just, yeah. it's just not the case. But they fell very much into that point that you made earlier about this um, uh, inherently validating really crappy oppressive opinions while we're trying to acknowledge the humanity of the speaker. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. So in that sense, I think that like we can that um, we can get people comfortable hearing and saying abortion. I mean, I, so I have a sticker on my laptop that says, fuck yeah, abortion. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's got one of the letters a little blurred out. So it's it's appropriate. But, I, you know, I get looks at like TSA and in airport lines and things like that. And a lot of it is, I, I believe, you know, just having folks get comfortable seeing the word and having folks get comfortable hearing the word. I don't know that they care about the speaker so much, but just like not have it be a thing that gets discussed in hushed tones. Mm -hmm. Right. So then we talked about the sort of early segregationalist taking up of the fetus's cause as a way of consolidating power, putting themselves as the as the persecuted one uh, through this sort of symbol of vulnerability. Could you speak a little bit to the feedback loops between culture and then things showing up in the court system? Because obviously there's some kind of a connection. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like the right wing has been excellent at that kind of mobilization over the past 30 years. What are the ways in which that can be intervened upon or collected upon? Okay, so um, let's talk about how we see it in the courts. My, We have a very real concrete example of this um, happening early on in the form of abortion regret syndrome. I don't know if you know that abortion regret syndrome is not really a thing. What it is, is a thing that Justice Kennedy decided was a thing in upholding the federal so-called partial birth abortion ban. And abortion regret syndrome is, well, it's a concoction by anti-choice opponents to abortion. So so they create a medical condition. They, they pathologize being a person who needs an abortion. Right. And then so first they create a pathology around it and mm -hmm. then they use that pathology to, quote unquote, minister based on I am going to protect you from this pathology that does not exist. Mm -hmm. And then they legislate on it. This pathology that does not exist is going to justify the exercise of state power to impose on a fundamental right. And then the Supreme Court blesses it. Right. So, right. Right. Have, like that yeah. is a very real, specific, concrete example. And now there are volumes written about it. Now, are there are there patients who have had abortions and in for whatever the reason re come to regret their decision? Yes, absolutely. Just the same way folks have in a myriad of other things. Uh, abortion is positive. Abortion is good. Abortion can also be fraught with a lot of emotions, and it does nobody any good to pretend that regret isn't one of them. Right. Is abortion regret syndrome a pathology that affects a significant or even a statistically noticeable amount of patients who go through the procedure? No. It is no. <laughs> like, right. right. So, so that's a great example of uh, the rhetoric and the sort of uh, cultural imaginary that the conservative side have developed directly affecting the legal outcomes. Mm -hmm. So how, how do we counter that? Well, 
I mean, I don't have one solid answer. I was, sure, like, I was expecting that you I feel like you need to like yeah. put in an audio effect in there or something. Right. It's like wah 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 wah. Um, unfortunately we have seeded a lot of ground in the cultural conversation, but I think we seeded that ground out of the gates. Like, I, I don't think the ink was even dry on row in the sense that we were already backing away from it. And so to sort of pick up on, on the point that I made when we first started talking that, you know, that we, we got the framing and it was really bad. Mm -hmm. in that decision. And we've been running away from that really bad framing ever since too. Um, So I think the very first thing we have to do is run towards it. Um, One thing that I try and do now, and I've said it a couple of times on as talking to you is really frame it in terms of exercises of state power, because sadly, I think that people don't care about women and pregnant bodies and pregnant people as much as they care about state power. And what we're talking about is an exercise of state power. And so I feel like I'm getting more depressed (laughs) the longer I talk. No, no, it's such an important point, though. I I, and I actually feel like that's one thing uh, I noticed. And I've mentioned this piece before. We did this piece where we connected two neighborhoods in Oakland in a live video chat for a week. And they had to see each other. They're neighborhoods that are geographically proximate, but socioeconomically completely yeah. different. Oh, I and used one, to live in Oakland. I love this. Yeah, <laughs> we connected Rockridge with International Boulevard for oh, a week. And they yeah. just had to like see each other. And, and they could talk amazing. to each other and communicate with each other. And one of the things that was amazing is that the people on the International Boulevard side were like, why are you putting more surveillance in our neighborhood? And the people on the Rockridge side, it never even occurred to them to care because they don't feel like they're going to be, their lives are going to be impacted by that kind of surveillance. So mm-hmm. I feel like when you talk about state power, one of the things that's tricky about that is who feels like they are at threat mm-hmm. for state power? It's not the people who feel like they're in power. Like mm-hmm. that's one of the right. things that's like, why should I care about state power? I'm a white man, so I'm Absolutely. never going to get fucked by it. Yeah. I mean, I think that you're right. I think that's an amazing point, but it's also like... Yeah, yeah. No. Oh, absolutely. The government that has the power to uh, force you to carry a pregnancy to term also has the power to force you to get an abortion, also has the power to of forced sterilization, which was actually happening right. not that long ago yeah, right. in the United States. So shouldn't, shouldn't the right wing be against that? Um, no, but this goes back to our racial point. Yeah, because um, the those folks, I mean, this is where we see people's racial politics, you know, really um, into play because they don't actually care about the government forcing sterilization on certain groups. And they know they have their own comfort. Right. They I mean, and these are the white women who voted for Trump. Mm hmm. <sighs> You know, I mean, ultimately, they will they they know and they may feel bad about it and occasionally like give money to an organization to sort of scrub their conscience of it. But, you know, they they I think in their hearts of hearts know that they have very little on the line to lose. And it's not until they do, um, unfortunately, and, you know, reaching them, man, I, I mean, I was moderately optimistic that a habitual accused uh, sex (laughs) assaulter would not have risen to the ranks that they did, but in, and not just one or two, or that, you know, the, the Me Too movement would have this sea change in conversations and we're still really worried about the reputation of Charlie Rose. And so I'm sitting here scratching my head too. You know what it makes me think of, you, you know, that, organization that was dealing with anti-smoking of the truth they were like trying to get young yeah yeah yeah. and they were trying to get young kids to not smoke and they realized that less effective was them talking about how like your lungs are going to be black and disgusting and all that stuff Mm -hmm. and what was more effective was saying these companies are making money off you Mm -hmm. these companies are exploiting you and it was actually very effective Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering what that equivalent would be in terms of women's health. And what's hard is that pointing out people's hypocrisy doesn't help. Like there's mm-hmm. so many people who yeah. talk about how like tons of people who call themselves pro-life when they have an unwanted pregnancy, they're getting abortions. Hey guys, oh, like yeah. that doesn't like that doesn't sort of enter the bigger conversation. So I feel like when you're talking about state power over our bodies, as being the thing to talk about. 
mm-hmm. because people don't want to have this other conversation. It makes me think of the the smoking thing and how to even sort of make that bigger equivalent. You know, Amy Hagstrom Miller has a line that I think is absolutely right on where she says, you know, more or less everybody is in favor of abortion in the cape of race, rape, incest, and me. And that is absolutely, (laughs) but I, I mean, but I, you know, and, and we see that even in terms of, you know, the most pious evangelical leaders will, you know, certainly trot their mistresses in, um, should they need to. Um, and, and I, you know, Amy should know this is, this is, she runs clinics. This is her field. She sees this. She's a good person who makes sure everybody has access to the care they need, regardless if they're out there in front of her clinics protesting the very next day or not. Yeah, every time I've had a chance to talk to or read work from an abortion provider, I've heard that reiterated, that they mm-hmm. they see the protesters outside their clinic come in yeah. and, and, and then need abortion care. And I mean, you know, it's even, and again, you know, to sort of cast some shade on our own folks, I mean, Imani Gandhi just had to write another piece to the Democrats and progressives folks on the left saying abortion is health care, like, don't, you know, because they're they're set, trying to segregate this out in the in the conversation around Kavanaugh. And you know, right. you're putting people's bodies on the lines when you do that. That's not OK. Yeah. If you're for universal health care, mm-hmm. you can't leave that piece out. Yeah. All right, well, Jessica, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. That was amazing. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. No, thank you for having me. This was fun. Tell our listeners again where they can find you on Twitter or other online spaces. Sure. So um, go to rewire.news. You can find me there um, a lot in these coming <laughs> as as it goes. Um, and please listen to our podcast, uh, my podcast with uh, Monty Candy at Boom Lawyer. That is on iTunes and Stitch and all the podcast places. On Twitter, you can catch me at Hegemommy, H-E-G-E-M-O-M-M-Y, and Amani's at Angry Black Lady. Together, we are Team Legal. You can hashtag Team Legal, and we will try and catch you um, if you've got questions or want to rail or or whatnot. And and yeah, we're usually on the we're usually on the Twitters yeah. um, talking about this stuff pretty frequently. Awesome! Thank you so much, Jess. Thank you. All right. That was really awesome. I love when we just talk out of our ass and then real experts tell us what the fuck is actually up. Yeah. It's like humbling, but in a very sexy way. Yeah, <laughs> really exactly. It was, it was great. It was really fun. Thank you so much to Gretchen and Jessica for being our guests and for all your awesome insights. Uh, listeners, we also want to hear your insights. So please reach out to us. Tell us your thoughts about this or any other topic that we've covered in the past. And also, uh, just so you guys know, we have recently fixed our iTunes so that all of the Sauces episodes are up. So for those of you who are new listeners, uh, go to iTunes right now. We are all there and you can uh, can hear us all. Catch up to us and anything you have any insight on, feedback on, we would love to hear it. Yeah, we love circling back. So you can reach us via email. We are saucepodcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram as at saucepodcast. You can also find me on Twitter. I am at gynostar, G-Y-N-O-S-T-A-R. And uh, if you're interested, you can find my webcomic at gynostar.com. And I am at Maya Garantz everywhere that there might be Maya Garantz's. There's only one of me. Uh, (laughs) And you are always welcome to write me as well. Thank you again to our guests, Gretchen Sisson and Jessica Piclo. Have a good week, everybody. We look forward to hearing from you. Adios, amibas. Adios.